magnify your name, we worship you, and thank you for all that you've given us. Lord, we thank you not just for the good, but for the hard, the difficult, the bad, the deadly, because we know that even to die is to gain. It is to be present with you. And uh, Lord, we know that the worst thing that this world can throw at us is one of the best things for us, and that is to be ushered into your presence. So, Lord, we thank you for all things. We worship you. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we study your word today and as we gaze upon a portrait of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing to occupy our minds on uh, the Lord's day, the Lord himself, to think of him, to think of his attributes, of who he is, of how he acts, his demeanor, his personality. Lord, may these things cause us to repent May they call us to brokenness and repentance. Help us to follow Jesus in light of who he is. We pray this is especially true for those who may be watching who don't know you. We pray that you would grant them repentance and faith, give them salvation. And Lord, I pray that they would be saved even today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I have to say I am so blessed. This week, as you know, uh, we sent out to all of you a survey asking your thoughts and opinions on things, and of course we couldn't calculate every different opinion or every different thought, but I just have to say, uh, as I went through all the answers and all the different responses, I'm just amazed by you folks. I mean, it's just, you're mature, you love the Lord, you want to be together, but you want to be safe, you want to do what's right. It just, it just, I went through the responses like two or three times, just amazed at how great a group, a church that I am privileged to pastor, and uh, I went through the, the directory. I would encourage all of you to do this. Go through the, the church directory. If you need a password, call the church office. And if you're a member, we'll give you a password. But you can go through that pictorial directory, pray through everyone, look at all those smiling faces, get choked up like me, and uh, see all those wonderful folks. And and uh, just been a wonderful, wonderful time. And we're so glad that uh, God has seen fit that we can start to meet again uh, in sort of an eased way. And so exciting that we can see one another finally once again. Today we're looking at Matthew chapter 12, and Matthew in this section, verses 15 to 21, he takes a moment to reflect on the fact of that Christ, in Christ, God is fulfilling his covenant promises. In Christ, all those ancient vows that God made to mankind, to the people who followed him, in Christ, those things are being fulfilled. So it is in Christ that we find our hope. In fact, that's what the last verse of this section simply says. In his name, all Gentiles will hope. So it's as if Matthew is is circling back to a theme that he he likes to go back to. Again and again throughout his gospel, he, he reminds us of this wonderful reality that Christ is a fulfillment You remember back at the beginning of our study of the book of Matthew that we actually paused and looked at seven statements there in the introductory paragraphs of uh, Matthew's gospel. There are seven statements this is in fulfillment of, and he he comments on a passage, and we, we paused and just went through all of those to see how Christ is indeed the fulfillment. Well, Matthew's doing this again, and he wants us to remember. It's almost as if he's saying, folks, don't forget This is all a fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of the ancient promises of God. And what Matthew does today is he takes us to a passage 
uh, mostly from Isaiah chapter 42, where God, through Isaiah, is painting the portrait of the Messiah, the portrait of the Messiah in the promises of God, you could say. He wants us to do what Jesus told John to do just in the last chapter. Look at the ancient word. Look at the ancient promises. Look at the the covenants. And as you look at them, compare them to Jesus Christ, and you will indeed be convinced that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And as we do that, it's not just for intellectual reasons or reasons that would sort of tickle our intellects, but to comfort our soul. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this is probably one of the most comforting, wonderful, uplifting passages, I believe, in all the Bible. And it's my goal today that as we look at this, we are strengthened as we gaze upon Jesus Christ and we're encouraged by Him and as we ponder His lowly wage that we will place our trust and all our hope in Him. If if, if those of us who are believers, that we would see Him and be encouraged and strengthened. Those of us who are not believers, that you would do that once and for all. Paul says that God's kindness, the kindness of God, should lead us to repentance. Romans chapter 2. And so I pray today that by gazing upon the portrait of Jesus Christ, and all these promises fulfilled, we would see the kindness of God in Jesus. Okay, let me read to you our passage, Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 15, and I'll go down to verse 21. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of God. Do you all know what I mean if I say that we must have a biblically robust Christiology? Christiology is, of course, the study of Jesus Christ knowing more and more what the Bible says about Jesus. That's what a biblically robust Christology is. I say Christiology, it's Christology. A biblically robust Christology is searching those depths. Now, truly, those depths are unsearchable. You could never get to the bottom of it. You can, you can spend your whole life trying to have a biblical, biblically robust Christology, uh, but you'll only scrape the surface just because we're finite be- beings. Well, a biblically robust Christology is not only a corrective to false doctrine, but it is also a salve for the hurting soul. What Matthew gives us here is a Christology, and there's, there's so much to know here, logically, theologically, empirically. This passage, I even debated doing what we did in Philippians chapter 2 and, and spending some time just walking through the theology of this passage. 
But just like Philippians chapter 2, the, the logical theological part of this passage is a means to an end. The objective is very practical, very applicable. And what is the objective of this passage? I already mentioned is that in his name we will find hope. So today I want to gaze upon Christ. I want us to ponder this portrait, and it's my desire that we find great hope in Jesus the Messiah. The setting Matthew gives us there in the first couple of verses, it says Jesus aware of this, aware of what? If you remember last week, Jesus was aware of the heart of man. He was aware of the heart specifically of the Pharisees. He was aware of their thoughts, the thoughts of the Pharisees and the others who wanted him dead. The Pharisees would join with other people, even some of their own enemies, to ensure the destruction of Jesus. Jesus was their greatest threat, and they would ally themselves with people who were their enemies, theologically, politically. They joined with the Sadducees, for instance. Some of you know that Sadducees were sort of the the, the, the religious liberals, the Pharisees were sort of the fundamentalists, the, the Sadducees were the religious liberals, and they allied with them to ensure the destruction of Jesus. Kind of like a bunch of fundamentalist Baptists joined with a bunch of mainstream Methodists to do something. never happened. But they do this here because they want Jesus to die. They joined also with uh, the Herodians. The Herodians were essentially irreligious. They were secular folks. You could call them that from, from our perspective anyway. These are people who are servants of the government. These are people who just served uh, the government for, for money or for power. They were not interested in any kind of divine truth. And yet the Pharisees joined with them. Why? Because they wanted Jesus dead. The divine, omniscient Jesus was, was able to read their thoughts. He was able to see their hearts. Just a few verses later, after this passage, it says, verse 25, knowing their thoughts. Jesus could know the thoughts of man. Under the authority of God, though Jesus had humbled himself as a man in this economy, he lived in submission to God. The Father clearly granted him use of of those attributes that were rightly his. And and in this respect, he, he granted him omniscience about the thoughts of these people. So as Jesus reads their mind, he knows something. He knows that their objective is to kill him. No matter what, they would ally themselves with whoever they had to to get him killed. And they began plotting and scheming here within the first few months of his ministry, probably within the first year of his ministry, they began plotting and scheming to get him killed. Well, Jesus reads their thoughts and he knows this. And so throughout the rest of his ministry, one of the things that Jesus does constantly is he tries to restrain talk, more discussion about him. And he does this, and we've talked about this before, he does this for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is he wants to control the narrative. He wants to control the truth. He is not just some detached miracle max. He's not just a miracle worker who's sort of just floating around doing miracles. There is gospel truth that Jesus wants injected into the reality of his miracles. And so Jesus, for one reason, one reason that he restrains talk about him is he wants to control that narrative. But another reason is because he wanted all this to happen according to the plan of God. He did not want to be prematurely killed. And so he does what he has to do to restrain discussion. He heals all these people. And then in verse 16, he says he ordered them not to make him 
known. And then Matthew tells us why. Why? What is the, one of the things that Jesus wanted to accomplish by, by restraining talk? He wanted to demonstrate just as he, that he was just as a predicted, uh, the prediction of the prophets gave us that he is indeed the hope of the world. This is what Matthew's saying. He wants to demonstrate that he is indeed the Messiah. He wants to control the message. He wants to die according to a timeline. And so after healing, amazing statement, by the way, all these people come to him, all these crowds come to him, and, and, and it says he heals them all. I, I do believe that there is a sense in which for major swaths of Galilee, Jesus just eradicated disease. These people come to him, and he heals them all, and then he immediately says, don't make me known and the reason for this, like I said, is so that he could control this message, so he could inject it with truth, and so he could prohibit him from dying in a too early stage of the timeline. So let's look at this passage here. Let's walk through this. Matthew gives us this, this portrait out of Isaiah 42, and what I want us to do today is just identify these, these qualities, these characteristics of the Savior as painted some 700 plus years before by the prophet Isaiah. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us really a, a summary. It's not a direct quote, but a summary of Isaiah 42. And we're going to walk through this and identify these qualities. It's five qualities, five qualities of the Savior that, of course, will lead us to have hope in Him. Quality number one, Jesus is God's chosen servant, Son. Jesus is God's chosen servant son. Verse 18, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Very interesting word that's used here for servant. Matthew is giving us uh, the meaning, really, of God's prophecy in Isaiah. Matthew uses the word servant there. It's not the word doulos, or what you might know as slave or bond slave. It's not the word diakonos, which is more like an honored servant in a household, where we get the word of uh, the idea of church servants or deacons. It's the word pais. You want to write it down, P-A-I-S. This word is often translated servant, but it's just as often translated as son. And you get the picture of what this, this type of servant is. It, it's a son who's, who's alongside his father. Doing what his father bids. Lending, working with, submitting to. But not out of a, a dry, authoritarian relationship. But out of a love relationship. A, a bending submission to the will of the father. Really, as you, as you see God and Jesus working toward redemption, it's almost as if you're, you're watching uh, the same man, a father and a son, the same man just... 30 years different, side by side, working together for the same goal in this loving relationship. And Jesus submitted himself to the Father at his incarnation to accomplish these things, and he, and he became this, this submissive son, a servant son. That's why I put it there in the title of, the, of this point, servant son. And that's why we get this other description, my beloved. This is the one who I've chosen. This is one who I've elected. I've set my electing love on him for this purpose to carry out my plan for the ages. 
The Son is the chosen and the beloved of God. And then God says through Isaiah, and then reported through Matthew, with whom my soul is well pleased. If you look at the book of Isaiah, what you find out in Isaiah's prophecy, there's a series of of songs. They call them servant songs or servant psalms in Isaiah. And what you discover very quickly, and I, I believe even Isaiah understood this, is that the, the, the idea of servant would be used to represent a number of things, the people of Israel, the, the prophet of God, but most importantly, it would represent the coming Messiah. And as we read through these servant songs, what you realize is this, this servant, the greatest of all servants, the most beautiful of all servants, the most submissive and wonderful of all servants, would indeed be the Messiah. We find out, as we get to especially to chapter 53 of Isaiah, is that this servant would in fact die. And we find out as we read that passage that, that God would be pleased, and there's really two different fundamental ideas that are presented to us in Isaiah 53 about God being pleased with this servant. One, of course, is that traditional idea that this servant would obey, this servant would do what's right, this servant would perfectly follow the Father's desires. He would act in perfect obedience and submission and willingness. But the other idea is that the servant would satisfy, would please God's wrath against the sin of others. Isaiah 53 famously says of that servant that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And of course, that does not mean it made God happy, but it satisfied the Lord. That the, It was the will of the Lord to bruise him, that from the anguish of the soul of the servant's son, the Lord would see and would be satisfied. The wrath of God against sin would be satisfied. Isn't this wonderful wrapped up in that loving, beautiful father-son relationship is this gospel story that the son would comply, he would obey, he would submit, and then he would lay down his life to satisfy the wrath of God against sinful human beings. God would be pleased. God would be satisfied. His wrath would be propitiated. That the punishment for others' sin would rest upon Christ so that they could find life. So here is Jesus stepping away from the Pharisees, not because he's afraid of them, not because he's somehow scared he's going to die, but because he wants to demonstrate that he would soon lay down his life as a fulfillment of this wonderful promise, pleasing to God. All that the Father wills, he says, I do. And that doesn't just include the, the, the stuff that we look to in terms of obedience, but also the fact that he would please God's just wrath. The perfect servant son, the beloved son, the chosen son, pleasing to God. Wonderful description of our Savior. What's another description? Number two, Jesus is full of the Spirit of God. Full of the Spirit of God. Verse 18, the second half says, I will put my Spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. 
if Jesus is the second part of the Trinity, why would he need the Spirit? I mean, he is part of the tri-unity, the, the three-in-oneness, so to speak, of God. He's, he's all one with God. Why would he need the Spirit? I think the best way to understand this is to remember how Jesus, though eternally God, with all the rights and powers and glory existing in eternity with God, he set those things aside. They were still his. They still belonged to him. But he set his use and demonstration of those things so that for a time he could accomplish redemption. He took on a, a role of submission. He existed equally with God in eternity. But he took on this role of submission to the Father. He submitted himself to the Father. And in that time, for the cause of redemption, he relied on the power of of the Spirit. He existed with the Spirit, with God, equal forever, but for this time, as a man, he submitted himself to God and he relied fully on the power of the Spirit to anoint his ministry. It's a given that human beings, in order to operate in conjunction with God's plan, to obey God's plan, we must rely on the Spirit. And this is precisely what Jesus did. So this is one reason, among others, that God anointed him there at his baptism to demonstrate that Jesus, for his ministry, would rely perfectly and fully on the Holy Spirit. He was in this phase of redemption. He had to take on the role of man and rely on the Spirit as, as man would to become son, redeemer, sacrifice, and then king. He wants to display what all humans should follow in, that is to rely on the Holy Spirit. Why? The, the, the truth emanates from the Spirit. That is the Bible, the, the power of the Spirit, the, the conviction and the strength and the, and the empowerment of the Spirit. And Jesus now, as a man, must depend on these things. And God predicted this 700 years before through the prophet Isaiah. His ministry would be empowered by the Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, this is incredibly practical if you think about it. And Jesus did not fall back on his deity to overcome temptation or hardship. He did not just lean back on his perfection, I'm eternally God, in order to get out of the, the tough spots of, of living life. No, he did the very thing that we're supposed to do, and that is he relied on the Holy Spirit. He filled his mind with the Word of God. He, he, he learned of the Spirit's truth revealed in the Word of God. He memorized and quoted and, and dwelt upon and, and quoted back when he was in the face of temptation. He did the very thing that all of us are supposed to do when we face hardship or even temptation. A number of famous preachers, including Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon, R.C. Sproul as well, report, reported that as they mounted the pulpit to preach Sunday after Sunday, they said six simple words from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And that's their way of saying, I, I depend on the Spirit to empower me. I depend on the Spirit's truth to go forth. I depend on the Spirit to change the heart of man. I cannot change people's hearts. I depend on the Spirit. I believe and I rely on the Spirit. Now, Jesus' ministry, far more than any other 
human being ever. Jesus' ministry was a demonstration of a reliance and an anointing of the Holy Spirit and his power. Jesus was full of the Spirit. He relied on the Spirit. He is the servant Son of God. Third, Jesus is self-controlled and meek. Jesus is self-controlled and meek. This gets us something I think a lot of us are curious about. What was Jesus' personality? What was he like to be around? Jesus was self-controlled and meek. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Now listen, there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus was a very firm preacher. You just read the Sermon on the Mount. You read other things that Jesus said. He preached of hell. He preached of judgment. He preached of damnation. He took out a whip, not once, but twice, and went up and chased out those who were violating the temple. But let me be very clear. Jesus was not some pansy, smiling preacher who just said all the positive things to make people feel good about themselves. He preached truth, and the truth was often hard for people to hear. And the truth was very clear for people to hear, probably more clear than what we want it to be. But this is a verse not about his preaching. This is a verse about his demeanor, his attitude, his personality. The word quarrel there, even the phrase cry aloud, means that he was not an argumentative person. You'll take note that as you study the Gospels, Jesus preached to the Pharisees, he gave hard truths to the Pharisees, but he never argued with them. We don't have any instance in the Bible where Jesus is bickering and arguing and complaining and, and whining and fussing and in some kind of heated debate with the Pharisees. In fact, when they came to him to sort of, to, to sort of bait him and get him to debate with them, he, he wouldn't do it. He would ask some simple questions and, and move on. And Jesus is not this, this angry, debating guy. He was magnanimous on a personal level, not, level, not a debater. These people, even sometimes called lawyers, would would come to him and they wanted to debate. They wanted to to, to argue with him. And Jesus would never be embroiled in these arguments. You know what I've realized? That all of us, all of us, I don't think there's any exception, all of us have some sort of genetic disposition to argue, to debate, to defend ourselves. And we, we blame it on some... Uh, you know, one, some part of our DNA. Sometimes I blame it on the Welsh side of me. There's a lot of fervor there. There's a lot of uh, desire for justice. Maybe you blame it on some other part of you, the Samoan side or the Chinese side or whatever part of you that you have found. That's my Irish, you know, that's in me or whatever. You found a, a way to sort of excuse yourself. Well, that's just the part of me that, that desires justice. And really what it is, that sort of attitude of debating and arguing and being angry, that really is sin. And we may pass it off as some sort of unchangeable genetic part of us, but the truth is we have a deep desire to prove others wrong, to be right, to win arguments, to to feel better about ourselves than we feel about others. We need to call it what it is. It's sin. And the reason we know it's sin because we never, not once, see it in Jesus Christ. He was not a debater. He was not a quarreler. I love that phrase, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. We all know argumentative people. We hear them. 
we hear them in the hallway. We hear them in the, the neighborhood. We hear them on Facebook or on other social media, griping and complaining and arguing and making sure everyone knows they have all this logic formed out for their argument and they can't understand why all these other idiots won't believe and follow them. And they believe their logic is sound. They believe that their cause is right. They believe their reason is righteous. You hear these folks everywhere. But has it ever dawned on you there's only one man, one person in all of history that had 100% perfect logic, 100% perfect argument, 100% perfect cause, and also had the 100% ability to put those causes and those arguments to words, and it was Jesus Christ, and yet you never hear him arguing, debating, quarreling, angry. He was quiet. He did not quarrel. He did not complain and bicker and argue. He, he was not known as the one that always put people in their place and let them have it when, when they crossed him. He's the only one that could have actually spoken and done that with full righteous vindication, and yet he never did it. As I look at this, I had to question my own heart. Do I have this spirit? Do I have this spirit of Jesus, this attitude, this demeanor? Do I live like this? And, and, and look back. Look back at your social media. Look back at, at what you've said to people. Look back at how you've acted toward folks, your interactions. Do you have rants? Is your life just full of all these rants? Or are you a person like Jesus who doesn't quarrel or cry aloud? He was self-controlled. He was meek. This goes along with number four. Jesus is merciful to the hurting. Sort of the other side of the coin here. Not only was he not a quarrel, he was merciful to those who were hurting. Verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Now there's two possible ideas here about a bruised reed, this, this image of a bruised reed. One is the image of a little gentle plant, a plant that is so fragile, so weak, a plant that is perhaps lining a, a pathway, and that plant gets all the abuse. That reed gets hit by every farmer's cart, every man's thigh. It's tugged on by every child, stripped of its plumage. That reed is, is barely surviving. And the picture then, of course, is that Jesus is so gentle and so kind, he can take such a, an abused reed and under his tender mercies, he can nourish that reed back to health. This is the kind of mercy that Jesus has. The other possible image here is that of a reed flute. Same word is used to talk about reed flutes. They would make reeds out of, or they make flutes out of these little reeds. And after a while, if you made a, a flute from especially a green reed, it would be a very delicate little instrument and it would be tossed around and sort of softened by all the spit and the abuse and eventually that little reed flute could not even play. It would not even make a, a sound because it had been so abused. And here again, the picture would be that, that Jesus is so gentle he could take this little broken flute, this little weak, small, beautiful instrument that cannot even, even play a sound anymore and he could take this and, and, and hone it and nurse it and bring it back to health. Well, either way, you get the idea, don't you? All this injustice, all this harm, all harsh play, a hard life, 
evil done against you, evil done to yourself by yourself. Jesus has the tenderness and kindness and willingness to make these things right. To eventually, not, not maybe not in this lifetime, but eventually bring it all to justice. That's the word that's used there. This dawned on you. There's not one evil. There's not one terrible thing that will not be brought to justice. And so, just as we said it a few weeks ago, the, the mercy of God and the justice of God are all in the same thing. In order to exact great mercy, he must be perfectly just. In order to be perfectly just, he must execute perfect mercy. And that's precisely what we have here. And Jesus has mercy. He acts in great mercy to people. It says, a smoldering wick he will not quench. And clearly the idea that it's a little wick, just a soft puff of smoke, hardly alive, weak. Jesus will not extinguish this, rather he will strengthen it. Again, what a beautiful description of his mercy. What's amazing as you look at Jesus' ministry is how many people were healed in Jesus' ministry but how few actually believed. I mean, look up there in verse 15 again. And many followed him, and he healed them all. Jesus, time and time again, would spend hours just healing everybody. Like I said, I believe Jesus, for all intents and purposes, eradicated disease in in whole sections of of Galilee. It's just amazing. And what's amazing is he didn't do it based on their faith, on their belief in him, on their hope. Or the amount of faith that they had. No, he did it out of pure, unadulterated compassion flowing from his own heart. It is bound to his nature that he is merciful and kind. And the reason he heals anybody, the reason he saves anybody, is simply because of his mercy and kindness. Well, this kind of grace, this kind of compassion... Paul says, as I mentioned earlier, should lead us to repentance. It should lead us to turn from who we are, our self-accomplishments, our self-righteousness. Whatever we think is going to save us, we turn away from that, we repent, and we follow him and make Jesus the object of our hope. And that's number five. Jesus is the object of worldwide hope. Jesus is the object of worldwide hope. Verse 21, this ancient prediction of the inspired prophet. This is almost 3,000 years ago for us. He says, in his name, Gentiles will hope. And here we are, ladies and gentlemen. 3,000 years later, almost all of us Gentiles, we find our hope in him. What a wonderful story. Isaiah living 700 years before Christ, 2,000 plus 2,000 years before us, 27, 2,800 years ago. Here is this great prophecy of this Messiah, and we come week in and week out because we find our hope in Jesus. Isn't that great? Wonderful truth. Well, my objective today is that we shore up that hope. Let's continue to trust in Jesus. Again, if you have not repented and followed Christ, that you would Turn to Christ, that he did pay the penalty of your sin. Turn to him to follow him all the day of your life. Let's ask God to help us with that right now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We pray, Lord, that these truths would be planted deep in our hearts. They would change us. They would mold us. They would make us 
that would fashion us to be more like Jesus. Starting place is repentance and faith for salvation, and then that repentance and faith grows and grows and grows until the day that we are glorified and made eternally like Jesus. And so, Lord, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We look to Him who is our blessed hope. We look to Christ for our joy, for our strength. We look to Him for mercy. And we pray that we would follow in His footsteps, studying His lowly and gentle ways, living like Him, believing like Him, speaking like Him, and hoping in Him until the day He returns. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, may the Father who bought you, the Father who has made you and established you, make you complete, like-minded, and comforted by the God of love and peace.